welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. Today on the show, I want to welcome everyone to the first episode of Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I've been looking forward to getting this podcast ready and sharing these interviews with everyone. Today we're going to talk to three people in the Philippine coffee industry. First person we're talking to is Neil Benayo. He's the farm manager at Tuminugan Farms, where Hinilaban coffee is grown. When I learned that their particular coffee, Hinilaban, had this thing where you could trace on a Google map where your tree was planted, I thought this was a fantastic idea to apply to Philippine coffee. And so when I decided to go to Mindanao, I made it a point to visit. So here are some clips from the morning I spent at uh, Tuminugan Farms, which I can't imagine having done any other way. That's the sound that gets me. Every time I hear that clip, I'm immediately transported back into the foothills of Mount Kitanglad in Bukidnon, in the interior of Mindanao. It does that to me because I remember just hearing those dry beans as you ran your fingers across them. One thing that I really found interesting with this visit was how Neil was explaining their concept for a transformational business partnership between the company and the farmers who grow the coffee. The term we coined for that is uh, transformational business partnership. Okay. So yeah. it's not a buyer-grower relationship where if um, if your crops fail, I I look for another I'll source. For another, yeah. It's a partnership and it's based on well transparency. Mm-hmm. The farmers know what's going on, the cost involved, and it's regular um, from field preparation down to harvest. And dun yung mga technicians namin in the field. And our technicians are mostly IPs. No, all IPs. Mm-hmm. So they know the dialect, so they're not, they're not strangers, actually. Mm-hmm. That's an important thing to note. Generally, economic growth has been a bit hard for locals to adapt to because there's a lot else going on in their communities. As we'll hear from Neil, having a technician in the field who is a recognized IP or indigenous person really builds the trust needed between farmers and the company that's helping them grow and distribute their coffee. But before I jump too far ahead, let's go back a little bit. Where am I? I'm in the foothills of Mount Dulang Dulang in Bukidnon. That's in the province of Mindanao. The farm itself is located past a big field of pineapples. And these are like, I woke up in the morning, opened the windows and just like saw this beautiful mountain range and rows and rows of pineapples as far as the eye could see. It was such a fantastic place and such a fantastic way to begin this story and this exploration into what the relationship is between the food that's grown on the land and the people who live on that land. So Neil picks me up from the place where I'm staying. We hop in his Jeep and drive through the plantation of pineapples. And though things look a bit dry, there's definitely a drought uh, in the region. It hasn't rained for four or five months uh, at that point. You can still see that there's a lot of life. And the coffee farm itself is pretty nondescript. You go into a gated area and you've just got trees growing along both sides of the little road there. So what we have here on our right, this is the varietal trial area for Arabica coffee. Okay. Now um, it's a trial area and ideally Arabica for the best quality should be grown in areas 1000 meters and up above Mm -hmm. sea level. 
uh, new plantings, we've uh, restricted our plantings to areas 1,200 meters and up. Okay. Uh, we figured that it's not worth the effort to in, uh, invest or expand in lower elevations because uh, cupping reports have shown that it's only 1,002 and up that really bring out the superior qualities of this Arabica variety. Where, where are we at now? Anong we are at 840 meters only. 840, okay. So it, it would still grow, it would still bear fruit, but quality, the flavor won't be there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've found that there's a higher incidence of pests and diseases at lower elevations. Okay. So it's really a high elevation crop. Now, precisely because uh, Hinuluban Foundation's main goal is really restoration and protection of the rainforest. That's why it's, uh, it's packaged as one of the uh, livelihood components. Mm -hmm. So Neil just mentioned something about the reforestation efforts that the foundation is trying to assist with in terms of getting the locals to benefit from the resources of the land and use the land more sustainably. What we're going to listen to next is his description of why it's important to help the locals understand the role that they play as caretakers of the land. But we acknowledge the fact that we cannot go into reforestation if the people are hungry. Yep. If people have no food on the table, Neil says, it's hard for them to understand. Why we have to protect the forest, mm -hmm. why we shouldn't shoot the Philippine eagle that yep. comes to your house looking for food. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> That bit about the Philippine eagle, that also stuck with me. Because later on in my journey, I came across two uh, Danish bird watchers. They were in the Philippines to look for the Philippine eagle, to spot it. And they were just aghast, like, why would anyone want to shoot such a majestic bird? I understand where they're coming from, but hearing it directly from Neil, many families have very limited financial resources so I see where the desperation to hunt an endangered bird for food comes in. It's a strange case of food insecurity in an environment where there are literally acres of land around. As we're walking, Neil stoops down and picks up a bulb from the ground, uh, brushes it off a little bit. It's fresh turmeric. It was such a bright, vibrant orange. The smell was like lemongrass, just the freshest earthy, but also kind of herbal smell. And he was talking about how turmeric uh, used to be very much incorporated in the indigenous diet, but these days locals have lost their taste for it, along with the knowledge of preparing a lot of what's around them too, which really brings home the point that if we want to continue to have those food traditions passed on in the future, even if we don't directly have a way of practicing that because we don't live in that region, there's no way we can't tell those stories. So next we're talking about how the coffee is grown in this particular area. What it used to be back in the 60s and 70s when coffee production was at a high in this region and what it's like now. That traditional commercial crop production would maximize every square inch available of the soil. Yeah, and like pineapple if you notice, right up to the roadsides. Yeah. So because uh, the measure there is uh, produ productivity by unit of land so mm -hmm. by productivity by hectare now that also requires a lot of fertilizers because 
The soil is stressed, depleted of nutrients, and suffers from overcrowding. Mm -hmm. So we spread out the population, we minimized it. That's why we're cutting down yung ano. The original design was the traditional uh, commercial design mm -hmm. of 4,000 plants per hectare. So we reduced that by half, and that translates to bigger yield per tree. So the unit now is per tree. And uh, we found that, well, with the low maintenance cost, uh, bigger yield per tree. The question about population density gets neutralized. And since the coffee as a livelihood component is designed as a family-operated farm lang, mm -hmm. so it's limited to one-fourth hectare per uh, farmer beneficiary, so that's 250 plants per beneficiary. Which you found has been manageable. Yes, manageable. Yes. So as we're walking through the farm, I notice that in between the rows of trees, there are these viney kind of crawling plants uh, that are planted in between the rows. So I ask Neil what they're about. I mentioned earlier that technology, uh, sustainable technology, that we're introducing to the farmers through the use of this uh, hedgerow. This plant right here is a legume. It's flamenja. So as a legume, it's capable of taking in oxygen from the atmosphere and storing it in, uh, in its uh, tissue, plant tissue. So at this stage, that's still nitrogen in the, in the stems and the leaves. Mm -hmm. So when it's about this high, 1.5 meters from the ground and the shoots are still uh, green, mm -hmm. we cut it, then place it as mulch. Okay. So when you do that, the nitrogen would leach back into the soil. That's your fertilization. Fertilization. And this is backed by um, analysis, scientific uh, laboratory an analysis. Mm -hmm. It shows that uh, Caliandra is able to support one cropping cycle of coffee. Next, we hop back into the tree and drive a bit more. These are robusta plants on the left. Yeah. Um, before, robusta was very popular in the country. A lot of farmers were growing it, but I think in the 1980s, the prices in the world market went down, like ridiculously low prices. So most of the farmers cut down their coffee trees, rented out the land to Del Monte. That's just one of the challenges they face here. Not being paid enough to grow coffee means that farmers turn to a cash crop that's guaranteed to have a buyer. In these parts, it's Del Monte. Next time you pick up a can of pineapples, note that this land is where they're grown. I ask Neil about what's paramount next. What the farmers lack is, one, access to the market. Mm -hmm. Second is quality control. Uh, mm -hmm. Consistency in quality. Consistency in volume. Mm -hmm. Process management. And those are things that corporations like our mother company, that's what we're really good at. Mm -hmm. Modesty aside. But as with every kind of challenge, there are benefits to also be earned. At Hinelaban, We link the Arabica farmer directly with the market. Mm -hmm. So um, the result is we pay about 300% higher than the trader. The trader would buy green beans at about 4 pesos to 6 pesos per kilo. Mm -hmm. uh, we are buying it at 18.50 per kilo. And if quality improves, prices will uh, then the demand will go up price will go up then we could 
give back more to the farmer. And isn't that what we want all along? Under this model of production, the Hinaliban Foundation aims to help farming families get the most out of the work they put in, resulting in a better quality of coffee that's harvested, processed, and packaged for sale. The jeep pulls up to a low building with short concrete structures to its side. From the field, you have a window of 10 hours. 10 hours? No more. That's 10 hours from when the coffee cherries are picked from the trees and sent into the first stage of processing. The next stage after it's um, sorted by size is sorting for defects. Mm -hmm. Still manual. So all the defects are taken out, cracked, nipped, black. Then we take a walk back outside. So at this stage, you run your hand. So that sound it makes almost ready na to. Uh -huh. the, the wet beans sound a bit heavier, but frankly at this point, I just want to run my hands over the beans again and again. You know this, may mga pulp na natitira, but since it's already went through the mucilage remover, wala na rin mucilage, so it doesn't really affect the color anymore. So it goes into storage in this form. Familiar kana siguro. This is the parchment. Mm -hmm. Side you have the silver skin. It's the silvery thing right there. Goes through a machine that removes the parchment and then polishes it. Then you're left with the green bean. What I notice at this point is that each of the beds that have green coffee drying on them has a little whiteboard with some dates, uh, some places written on them. So I ask Neil what those are about. This is from Gihian, the name of the place. Harvested February 10, processed February 10, 6 p.m. Depulsed the same day, uh, one through the demisilation for 30 minutes. Started placing it in the racks at 8 p.m. Bed 3 to 1 D. So that's the traceability we have to go for per area per elevation. Okay. And when it's placed in sacks, it's area. That's how they can track which tree your coffee came from, and with the GPS coordinates that they've previously recorded, they can tell you exactly what tree your coffee was grown on. Time will come that uh, the traceability will be per farmer basis. There are really outstanding farmers and really outstanding coffee. So if you get the opportunity to try Hinaliban coffee or any local Philippine coffee for that matter, please go and try some. Back inside the building. The ghost, Mom. Oh, there you go. But so what are we looking at uh, here? This is our roasting room. This is the most critical step in the processing. Mm -hmm. So if you make a mistake here, that's it. Mm -hmm. Finally, we step into the storage room. Storage, if uh, there's a demand, uh, we are going to roast. Mm -hmm. and the next step would be to this machine. We hop back into Neil's Jeep and drive around for a few more minutes, going through the area. The farm really is beautiful, and it's such a perfect morning that day. The sky is like blue with no clouds to be seen, and the sunlight kind of gives you like this warm hug that I sorely miss now that it's winter in Toronto. 
So we drive around a little bit more and head into the main offices for Hinaluban Coffees, where we sit down to a cup and Neil and I chat about what he's doing and what his life's like at the farm. I also work with a group that um, rehabilitates uh, raptors. Oh, this was cool. yesterday. We were going to release it, but uh, we decided it was not yet that ready. Oh, and by the way, what I failed to mention is that when I first met Neil that morning, his entire right arm was covered in bandages. I asked him why, and he says that a couple of days ago, they had to go back up to fight a forest fire. Again, drought's been set heavily in this area for a while now, and despite that, he powers through. And apart from being a forest firefighter, he's also an amazing wildlife photographer. He shows me some shots from his phone. This is Mount Ulandulan, it's taken from Kitangland. Beautiful shot. It's beautiful, but uh, if you look closely, like that's grass. Yeah. That's, these are the patches that have been burned out. I mean, it should be all like that. Covered by trees, yeah. And this is where headwaters are in the middle. So, we have to do something about the slopes. Uh, in the same manner that the fire slowly crept up, you could design your planting in such a way that it would march down on its own. Mm -hmm. Eventually. Naturally. It'll take years, but mm -hmm. we have to do something about it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to keep having your coffee, then you have to do something about the mountains. Mm -hmm. No mountain, no rain, no rain, no coffee. Mm -hmm. And if I had to summarize the lessons I learned from my visit to Tuminugan Farm that morning, that last sentence from Neil pretty much sums it up. No mountains, no rain, no rain, no coffee. It's an ecological system that has its own ways and has its own manner, and if we don't respect it, we lose it. And that's a detriment to Philippine coffee as a whole. So the next person we're talking to is Pasita Chit Juan. So how did I first come across Chit? To be honest, not until I got to Toronto. I was in the public library researching some books about coffee. When I first started getting really interested in the subject a couple of years ago, I came across a book called Baraco the Big Bean. Obviously struck a chord with me because then I wondered, what's a book about Baraco doing in a public library in one of the largest cities in North America? So I took it out, brought it home with me, read about the Baraco bean in a way that I had never even thought twice about before. Which surprised me because when I was growing up in the Philippines, the only coffees I knew until I hit about 13 or 14 was the three-in-one Nescafe kind that you would find wholesale in groceries or small and little sachets at the corner store. Now that I was in Toronto, I was learning about this particular kind of coffee that excelled really well in the Philippines. So when I decided to do an episode about coffee, I knew I had to talk to Chet. We're talking about what's led her to where she is today as co-chair of the Philippine Coffee Board, an organization that provides technical assistance and credit programs for coffee farmers, and as well as founding the Philippine chapter of the International Women's Coffee Alliance. Chit's also been instrumental with driving Slow Food Philippines, the local chapter of Carla Petrini's Slow Food Movement, based in Italy, that advocates for preserving local foods and food traditions in the spirit of celebrating good, clean, and fair food. Here's Chet. Uh, about myself, well, I've always been an entrepreneur. 
after college, I guess I had the uh, opportunity to do um, several startups. Well, you call them startups now in the millennial age. During that time, it's just business idea that, you know, like, like my friends and I had a, a little coffee shop uh, outside campus. And then after that, we would always do business. Um, I asked my friends, what, what business can we do? You know, when you're young, when you're in your 20s, you feel like you can work 24-7. Other friends and I set up a coffee chain. Well, now I call it the coffee chain because we started really just as a cafe. It's called Figaro. Okay. We started this in 1993 and uh, we grew to about 70 stores. That chain was one of the first in Manila to really advocate for the Baraco bean. And one of the first times I remember seeing a coffee shop in a mall of all places that featured a local Philippine product. I've always been a salesperson. I love looking at what attributes something has for me to sell it. And that brings me to, for example, the Baraco. The Baraco has always been one of the coffees produced here in the country. However, because the biggest buyer in the country before was Nestle. Nestle buys Robusta. And that's an important point in telling the story of Philippine coffee. Who are the buyers and who are the farmers actually producing this coffee for? Barajo is probably just 2-3% of total production. Uh, total production of the Philippines is 90% Robusta and the 10% is split among the three other varieties. Arabica, Liberica, and Excelsa. And so if you're selling, let's say, big volumes, if you add the Barajo and Excelsa, people wouldn't know that it's not 100% Robusta. Because 90% of production is Robusta, when you sell to Nestle, they won't be able to tell if there's like 0.01% Barajo in there. And because of that, people just kept selling it in volume with Barajo, Excelsa, and Robusta combined. Okay, so to back up and give you a little bit of context here, what's happening is that because Nestle purchased Robusta beans from farmers in wholesale volumes, Nestle had no way to know that all of the beans they were buying were indeed Robusta. And so farmers who traditionally had grown Baraco were now switching over to Robusta so they could have a consistent yield uh, and consistent buyer for their coffee. The point is, pretty much because demand for Baraco beans tanked and nobody was buying them, Baraco beans just fell off the map. Maybe about 1996 or 97, I did like an informal market research where I had an air pot of Barajo and an air pot of Robusta. And I talked to the man on the street and he actually preferred the Barajo, except he can't find it because everything's mixed with Robusta, remember? So I had the flash of an idea and we launched Save the Barajo Movement. So it made farmers sort the big bean, which is the barajo, from the robusta, and we paid them higher for it. Again, circling back to the origins of the story, and that coffee is really all about the farmers. We launched this campaign that this variety may soon die because what farmers were doing is that they were cutting the barajo trees to replace them with robusta because nobody was buying the barajo anyway. So what we needed to do was to inform the farmers that there is a market for Barajo. 
we defined what Barako is. It's not just a generic name for good coffee, which is what it was coming to be. Barako is a variety. Barako takes the name from the wild boar, according to Batangueños, because they can stand alone. Barako for us means macho in the colloquial language. And so a strong cup of coffee can be drunk by somebody who felt macho. Anyway, there's a lot of legends. There's a lot of um, uh, anecdotes. And so what we did is we went seriously into saving the barajo. After we did that, we started also tree planting from 1999 all the way to the time I left Figaro. We were planting barajo every year. So that made people aware, oh, barajo, yeah, we got to save it. Oh, yeah, this tastes like barajo. And there's this buzz. And we could sell it higher, making the farmers now plant more barajo. To this day, there is the consciousness and the price of Barajo that has remained high, almost as high as Arabica. And therein lies the power of great research and telling a good story the right way. The Barajo, we thought that to really nail the campaign was to write a book about it. So I co-wrote that book in 2005 with Dr. Mohika. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a farmer. You know, I'm just a coffee lover. So we wrote it. And with his research, we collected Barajos from all over the country. And now Barajo still has a demand globally. It may have a fruity taste for the simple reason some people even say it's like jackfruit. Barajo is best when it's aged for one to two years. It's fermented and then it's kept dry at 12% moisture or less in vacuum packs. And it's not roasted until after it's aged. So obviously I wasn't a Barako drinker growing up, but I do remember from visits to Batangas, where the Barako is widely grown, having some and remembering that it was a really strong, really bold coffee. So what else about the Barako? It's still in high demand. There are a lot. We have a Barako uh, germplasm collection in Cavite State University. So if you come around again, you can drop by and see it. And it's being taken care of by the National Coffee Research Center housed in Indang, Cavite, in Cavite State University. The Barajo has a different flavor, so there is no uh, grading system for it so far. The only grading system that the Coffee Quality Institute has is for the Q or the Arabica and the Robusta. So there are no grading. I mean, for the Barajo, I guess it's either you like it or you don't. It's not like it should <laughs> score 80 points or something like that. Because any Barajo I have, somebody will buy it. So it's that good. I wish I could get Barako. I'd love it if one of the specialty coffee roasters in Toronto stocked them. There's so many around. But even in the Philippines... I hope you know by now that our consumption is more than our production. And this is why there have been imports from Vietnam. Especially on Barako, there's very little that we can get. And so even London wants it. You know, I have so many inquiries every day. You know, the market, they always want something new. They want something rare. They're always looking for a product that they can sell that's new. And I think to them, Barajo is still new. So as we continue, what we do is instead of selling the beans, we propagate it faster so that people have access to the planting material. Because you have a choice that when you pick the fruit, you either make it into another tree or you just drink it, right? That particular bit there relates to some of Chit's work with the International Women's Coffee Alliance and a campaign she was really instrumental with helping start called Pick Red. 
And when you tell the story about women doing the sorting, women who pick only the ripest cherries because men don't care to pick what's red and what's green, they just harvest. It's the women who do the detailed tasks, and that's globally. So we launched a program called Pick Red. Visually, you must only pick what's red and ripe, and that's what we buy. Secondly, we tell them to wash it because you cannot wash green fruits. You can only wash red. So washed coffee means all of them were ripe to begin with. However, in some areas where they don't have water, we can't let them wash. So we gave them another tag. We call them naturals. So it's a matter of segmenting the market so that each producer actually has a niche in the market. It may be simple in its task. Instructing farmers to only pick ripe red cherries so they can get the most out of each tree and sorters generally have less work to do. But then we're reminded that sometimes even basic access to clean water is a real hindrance for farmers in the Philippines. On the value of coffee, specifically barako as slow food, Slow food is really about creating biodiversity. And for you to preserve biodiversity, you have to make sure that the other older crops don't disappear. And so the way to do that is to list them in the arc of taste so that the whole world knows that there's this variety that we got to save. And locally, you ask consumers to use it. You ask chefs to use it. So in the coffee chain, the parallel would be the chefs are the roasters. So if the farmers know that there is a market for it, then they will continue to produce it. So I always believe that the consumer is a co-producer. The education must be throughout the value chain, that the consumer knows why this is endangered, whether it's coffee, rice, a breed of cattle or a breed of pig, to the chef who interprets it and back to the farmer who continues to grow it. So what else about the barraco? Okay, so it's a different flavor. And when I brought it to Italy to slow food, I wanted it to be part, well, I enrolled it in the arc of taste as an endangered species. And so I brought along some samples, and the people loved it. The Italian chefs, everyone, they loved it. The slow food organizers told us, you have to bring something that is enrolled in the arc of taste. And so I brought barajo. Although Benguet Arabica was recently also enrolled in the arc of taste, because in Benguet, people are not expanding their plantations. Benguet has a very small land area and it's really like sloping. The trees are old. They're like 80 years old and older. So eventually, if there are no new farmers, that's going to die. Listening to these clips is really starting to get to me. What can we do to save Philippine coffee? Really continue to propagate it, to cultivate it. So there we're working with Benguet State University a collection of the different Arabicas that grow in the Cordillera. So they've got a lot of what we call cultivars. They have Bourbon, they have Tipica, they have San Ramon. These are all like collections, just like with Cavita State University, where they have collections of Barajo. Since it's a government facility, I like it that it will never be sold. It will never be, it'll never disappear, I hope, as long as we continue to support the school system. And this is an interesting aspect to coffee production that I would never have thought about. Chit's going to talk about why it's important to find a home for Philippine coffee trees. Dealing with the academe is also important for us. 
because I had some mishaps when we were doing tree planting. The next year, the land was sold, you know, so they probably will cut the trees. So we had to do another thing. So we did adopt a farm. But adopt a farm only had a five-year lifespan. So again, whoever owns it after five years may destroy the trees. So we said, okay, if that didn't work, what we should do is do um, planting in national reserves, like mountainsides, like government property. So that's the way we're telling people how to do tree planting now. And this is a current reality that happens not just in the Philippines, but in many other countries where coffee and other crops are slowly just getting phased out of existence because nobody's there to support them. Despite all that, I still believe there's something special about Philippine coffee. First of all, we're in a tropical country. Coffee will only grow in the tropics. So that's within the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn, and we happen to be within it. So there is in the world what you call a coffee belt, and that is Southeast Asia, Southern India, Africa, Latin America, and Central America. I asked, what's being done to promote Philippine coffee? Of course, in the coffee industry, we know about Specialty Coffee Association of America, SEAA. We know about CQI. That's the Coffee Quality Institute, the organization that certifies graders for coffee. But it's expensive to hire them to come here. So what had happened is there is an organization called ACDI VOCA. It's a nonprofit composed of, I believe, ex-USDA people who like to do volunteer work and projects around poorer countries, if you will. So ACDI VOCA landed a project called MINPAC. MINPAC centers on three commodities, coffee, cacao, and coconut. Now, they feel that for a country to better its industries, there has to be almost like an all-knowing group with regards to coffee standards, etc. So in coffee, they chose the Philippine Coffee Board. That's the organization that CHIT is a co-chair of and whose goals are to provide technical assistance for actually setting up the coffee farms and providing credit for smallholder coffee farmers. We're a 14-year-old nonprofit born out of our desire to keep promoting coffee in the world market, even if our production is low, just so people don't forget us. Because as a marketer, I feel even if our production is low, we can sell anything. That's a big thing for promoting Philippine coffee, not just within the Philippines, but in international markets, too. With the coming of MINPAC, they gave us access to the Coffee Quality Institute's best teams. We had the senior advisor, Ted Lingle, visiting trainers. And so we did several classes courtesy of the MINPAC project. We had an introduction to Q trading. We had a pre-Q course. And as we speak, we now have our first Q-grading exams ongoing to hopefully produce an army of coppers from different sectors of the coffee value chain. So from producers to academe to, to retailers to roasters, we want everyone to speak one language, and that is the quality language. I asked Chet more about what having certified Q-graders in the Philippines really means for the advancement of the coffee industry. We hope to replicate all these classes and all it takes is for CQI to send us their certified instructors. Luckily, some people, even before this program, already took Q classes to become Q graders for whatever personal reason or business reason. 
So we have a handful in the country. I would say safely say eight or ten. I mean, it's growing by the month because you can take Q exams now in China, in Singapore, in Chiang Mai, in Indonesia. So CQI has ICPs or in-country partners in almost every coffee-producing country because okay. at at the source you have to teach them already so that you get better quality coffee. 80 is the passing grade and you want coffees that score higher up in the 80s, possibly in the 90s. And this gives the roaster an idea of the price that he will pay for. Having this rating system truly helps. Although, of course, with a little caveat, like farmers, they just have to know what good coffee tastes like. They don't need to score it, but they have to know what the scorer or copper is looking for. He's looking for clean coffee coffee that is free of, of defects, free of trash or any other debris from the farm. So that's all farmers knew. But who was grading Arabica? There was nobody grading Arabica. You would have to get a sample, send it to Japan, send it to some other place. Right now, that will be the Philippine Coffee Board's, I would say, job so that we can also earn for our sustainability. So we can grade coffee samples. Eventually, we can teach more Q graders so that everybody speaks. It's almost teaching really like a foreign language. What's interesting to me about this particular shift where the Philippine Coffee Board is taking the lead on getting more certified uh, Q graders who are Filipino and based in the Philippines, then you're kind of introducing the idea that it's really going to be consumer-driven, not in the same way that it is with Nestle, where it's one big corporation, but in this sense, more distributed amongst people. Because the more that I know about the quality of my coffee, it helps me kind of better understand that I want to support and I want to buy this kind of coffee from Benguet because it has this particular flavor. When the graders are able to kind of teach me as a consumer, I feel like that gives Philippine coffee in general like a better profile because you're getting people to interact with it in a different way. But now that the farmers know from the farm level that they can get it to a better quality, then it gives them the bigger margin that used to go to the middleman. So it's more like fair trade and really relationship farming, if you will. There's a direct relationship between the farmer and the roaster, at least. So I heard about some really great news today. The next person we're talking to is Carmela Reno, who is the co-founder of a coffee company called Calzada, which currently operates out of the Philippines, uh, but really was kind of born and bred, if you will, on the Pacific Northwest coast of the United States. Calzada's just reached their funding goal through Kiva, an online platform that allows a borrower, in this case the Calzada Coffee Company, to crowdfund a loan that can be repaid over time. They reached their target of $25,000, funded by over 700 lenders in under two months, to purchase fair trade coffee from 290 smallholder farmers in the Philippines. Carmel is an incredibly interesting person to talk to because her insights on the process of coffee production, as it currently is in the Philippines, really allows us an inside look into what the reality is for a lot of coffee farmers in the Philippines today. My name is Carmela Reno, and I'm the founder of Calzada Coffee Company. We are a startup, I would say. We've been around for 
a little over three years, and we are working from the farm level to roasting and selling in the local Manila and Philippine markets and exporting the coffees right now to Seattle and my home state of Washington and roasting from there as well. So where did the name Calzada come from? Like, you know, since it's place based and why not think about like a Filipino word, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. And so I just was thinking about what what this could be and Calzada really resonated in that road or street could mean so many things to different people and tracing the Philippine coffee from farm to cup and the different roads it takes to get there and then the journey of the coffee and of myself of returning to the Philippines and the journey of the entire team of creating this. It just sort of fit in multiple levels that we're still on this journey together and it's just not myself. It's It really takes like the farmer, the consumer, our wholesale partners, you listening to this and myself to I thought about that value of that name and what it could mean, you know, and I got goosebumps the first time, you know, a farmer said, it was like, oh, ma'am, I thought you were coming to build us a road, right? It was really cute. I was like, no, I don't have money to build you a road. But how a calzada, literal calzada is make or break it for farmers, right? That how their product gets to a market is really important or the lack of road. And that in essence, Calzada, I and our team is our, is that road for some of these people, you know? I was just, oh my God, this is a really crazy endeavor. I didn't really think this is going to be this way. But um, in that aspect, we're still small, but I think we have big dreams and big goals for the coffees here. So... Yeah. How can you not get excited by that? That's amazing. I wanted to find out more. So I asked Carmel about how this all started. I started the thinking process and kind of uh, impetus for the company now was this black and white photo of Pike Place Market, this Filipino coffee company. And I was doing research as an undergrad at the University of Washington in Seattle, a history project under Vince Raphael, one of the foremost scholars of Philippine history. And so I was researching more of the economy and the differences of how Filipinos ended up in the Pacific Northwest and how the they were perceived in different circles or different ways, both as educated and what um, folks quote unquote called as savages, right? We existed in both these spheres. And uh, having grown up in the Pacific Northwest, I was highly interested in both you know, the background and histories, the multiplicity of histories of the various immigrations of Filipinos in um, in that region. And for me, particularly, my family moved in the early 90s. I was seven at the time. So we're fairly new in terms of first, second generation Filipinos in the United States, where, you know, there's deeply rooted the Alasqueros and, and the other folks that have come through, through, you know, as nurses, as doctors and farm workers as well. And I get her excitement. The idea of uncovering all of these histories is such a fascinating topic for me because it allows you to understand a little bit more about yourself as you learn what life is like for a specific community. 
And so I was just super fascinated and I was in doing archival work in uh, one of the libraries and I came upon that picture, which had nothing really, had everything and nothing to do with Calzada now where it is, but was really the starting point of the curiosity that I had, which, you know, in one photograph, all these questions arose, you know, it's like, wow, there's coffee in the Philippines, what does coffee taste like from there? Um, if this company had stayed in Pike Place Market 60 years after that Starbucks started in Pike Place, right? So like, would Starbucks have served Filipino coffee? And for me, it just this photo kind of represented who I was as a Filipino American coffee lover from the state of Washington, uh, sort of was an inquiry with regards to my parents and my history and heritage back in the Philippines. So in all aspects, it kind of represented who I was, and I wanted to explore it. So what was it about the photo that really grabbed you, I asked? Uh, I didn't really care about who the men were in the photos. I was more curious about the coffee and what it would take to bring back Philippine coffee to Seattle with the goal and intentions of making sure that the farmers were at the forefront. And my background as an undergrad was I did international studies and political science and minored in human rights. And they had done some work in the Philippines and gone back and forth. And so this photo is sort of, you know, an entry point to coming back to the Philippines in the future. Opening a coffee shop could be really anything, right? <laughs> so, But before she moved back to the Philippines, Carmel spent some time building a career in Seattle. I worked in a law firm, thought I was going to go to law school, worked at uh, the Wing Luke Asian American Museum, and really was more part of the Asian American social justice stuff um, going on in Seattle. And then I worked at a design firm and really did a 180 where, you know, I was in charge of multiple different accounts and we did a lot of ad campaigns, which was beautiful in the sense that I got super creative and really thought through different marketing campaigns, but also informed how I think about Calzada and what we're doing, you know, and really Calzada in itself, if you think about it, didn't start off as a coffee company. It was really this exploratory of seemingly desperate things that then turned into solving and creating this company. So I had no intentions at the start to be at where I was now, where I am now. Fast forward to like 2010, I came back here and I was on a Fulbright Hayes uh, language program and I was here for I believe three months, and then I stayed on for an additional month. My family in Cavite on a weekend trip took me to a farm in Amadeo, and and so that photo again reappeared in my mind. That excitement about Philippine coffee is what's so infectious about Carmel talking about Calzada's story. Like, I've never been that excited myself over a coffee bean. I remember tasting it, and not that, you know, and I grew up in... Seattle. So when I tasted coffee from Cavite, it wasn't it wasn't anything I wanted to have again. You know, not that it was bad. It just wasn't the flavor profile that I was looking for. So I was like, oh man. You know, instead of being disheartened, my thought process was, um, this can't just be it. There's got to be more. There's got to be more places to explore. There's got to be other ways to find the type of coffee I'm looking for. Um, and I didn't grow up here, so I didn't really have the palate 
of, you know, like Baraco or what people quote unquote say is like Philippine coffee. For me, there was more to be explored in terms of flavor profiles that in itself could be Philippine coffee, right? It shouldn't be pigeonholed to one taste or one type of bean. How do we get Philippine coffee back on the international stage where it can compete with other origins um, and that it can stand alone? It can have a brand and an image that promotes, you know, diplomacy promotes other things outside of coffee. I really saw coffee as a starting point and learning more about rural development, differences in cultures around the country, and, uh, you know, having other people outside of myself really be interested in our country, right? It's more like gastro diplomacy, if you will. Like, I just saw it as a way to introduce the world to the country. On the thing that drives Calzada. I started this blog really just with a mission and vision of Philippine coffee, inviting folks that were also interested, coffee lovers with that same ethos that I gravitated towards. And one of those people was Lacey Audrey, who lived in Paris at the time. From there, I met Lacey, who now is my co-founder. I was looking for someone who could write about the emerging specialty coffee scene in Paris. We had a blind Skype call and we hit it off and that was, that's something indicative of Calzada. A lot of it was luck and serendipity and now it's sort of formulated into something concrete. But in the beginning, it was very fluid in that we were all kind of collectively on the same vision and mission, but um, trying to still figure it out along the way. My whole point was that we would inspire someone living in the Philippines and then we would consult from afar. But it ended up that Lacey and I moved to the Philippines in 2013. The first time we ever met in real life was in Manila, which is crazy, you know? And I mean, I think being a millennial or at the cusp of that is sort of, you know, you really want to know and you really want to understand things and you if you don't trust what the the systems that are in place now and the reasons why we can't have Philippine coffee abroad, there has to be something that's happening on the ground that isn't working or that isn't facilitating for it to happen. And for us to really understand that, we had to be here and really interview the farmers and get to know from the bottom up and learn the grassroots level of how we fit into the picture, right? Can I just say that I feel, I don't say this on blind Skype dates very much, but I feel so connected to you in terms of everything that you've said really resonating with me and as well as with other people, I imagine. So what's going on at Kalsada these days, I asked Carmel. Um, we're sort of in that entry level of rethinking about our next steps for Calzada and it is to reach more smallholder farmers and increase our impact as well as we have a high demand both locally and internationally. And we're in that kind of sticky spot of like, okay, we can't grow unless we have more coffee. And it's, it's interesting to be at this stage around the same time, just a year ago when we were raising funds. In terms of the flavor profiles that we've seen, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, we get lumped into being an Asian coffee and the Asian coffee that people understand and know in the coffee industry is either from Vietnam 
or from Indonesia. But the coffee history and how the beans traveled to this region is unique and different because, you know, one, we're an archipelago country, Indonesia is as well, but we were colonized by different parts of the world. So the varietals and how it got placed into each region is unique and different. And our terroir and where we sit in terms of the coffee belt is different as well. And so for the regions up north in Binget, um, we we have some coffees that can be similar to African coffees with, you know, some floral notes and a bit of citrusy. And we've seen that also in the Bukidnon coffees. It's great that we're at the stage where we're able to find those notes, but also still create what a Philippine flavor profile will be, right? So we're still doing a lot more experimentations and processes on the farm level this year. Um, and we've gotten really great feedback from friends in Seattle that, you know, we do tastings with from our previous harvest and all, as well as our um, wholesale partners in Manila and understanding what their needs and wants are in terms of flavors, right? So that we can then curate it and perhaps change what's happening on the ground in the farms. Whew, that's a lot to take in. But at the same time, I'm incredibly happy to hear all of this. It's really comforting in a way because then you realize that there are so many other people out there who have the same goals of preserving a particular food item and of really trying to get it to a stage or trying to get it to a place where people recognize it for what it is. Next up, I asked Carmel Moore about a member of the Calzada team who she's mentioned a couple of times. Tere, who is now our head roaster in Manila, but also is in charge of our community building projects up in Binget, was someone I had met earlier. She's a friend of my sister's who was traveling to Cebu and we all were going to Sikihor together. So really into adventure and whatnot. And so Tere speaks Ilocano fluently in that early stage was like, oh yeah, I'm doing a tour. I'm going to Mountain Province. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you guys going to Sagada? Because I really need to go and find coffee. And she's like, sure, come along. And as the story of a lot of folks in Calzada, it starts off like that, where you're into coffee and you're exploring things. And then now that it is still with us three years later and is Q certified and is roasting in Manila. And I'm sure if you asked her that early on, she was like, I was just supposed to take Carmel to Sagada and like translate in Ilocano. But, you know, you kind of go through this moment and see the connection, but also coffee in itself is like a really, really big black hole. And there's so much you can learn and uncover. Today has been crucial in being able to open up a lot of these communities and these interactions because um, I myself and Lacey would not be able to do that, right? I, I, although I am Filipino, I am still very much an outsider to some of these um, communities. So it really needed to be coming from someone that could speak the language, they could trust. And that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about research and on-the-ground research, especially when you're dealing with people's livelihoods. Lacey and I are also aware of where we stand and the privileges we have. Whatever we were building, whatever we were creating, it 
also needed to come from a local perspective, right? We have a lot of uh, international knowledge and resources that we've seen the world outside of this context. And we have a uh, duality in perspective, especially myself having, you know, ties to the Philippines. But we knew that having someone today and some locals involved uh, would really inform us of um, these cultural nuances and perspectives that we wouldn't fully, we wouldn't be able to fully understand. And each location, each area is going to be unique and different. After all, the Philippines has over 7,000 islands. That's a lot of places where you can plant different kinds of coffee trees at different altitudes. Um, and it's been fun, you know, like I think the curiosity got the best of me. And I think now it's kind of... Um, honing down a lot of these what seemingly were things that were thrown at me that I picked up and um, threw back out and um, aligning them with, you know, a proper business structure and the alignment so that we can sustain ourselves and our growing team and um, get the coffees to market, right? Like we had that initial stage of kind of being like, we, we like had a lot of cool things happen. And now it's kind of, you know, growing and getting down to business and asking a bunch of folks and Googling things. And even myself, right? Like I didn't have anything to do with coffee prior to moving to the Philippines, except that I drank a lot of coffee. Um, and so uh, probably both the best and worst idea is to jump into this right head on. But you also, um, the context will be different and you can really build something that may not have existed prior because you don't know what it should be because you don't have anything else to refer it to. <laughs> so I guess that ending's kind of reflective of what I was thinking about when I wanted to tackle this topic about Philippine coffee. We covered so much today from learning about the farmers in the foothills of Bukidnon to what Pasita Juan does on behalf of Philippine farmers and advocating for them and getting roasters certified so that we can raise the status of Filipino graders and the status of the coffee beans produced by farmers in the Philippines. And then moving on to Carmel, who's kind of taken a different approach to achieving the same goal that Neil and Chit and every person who's involved in Philippine coffee has to get it to a really great quality, get it to market, get people talking about it, and most importantly, tasting it. Theme music for this episode is by David Seste, Kilikudi, and Eric and McGill. Please visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com for more information and subscribe through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thank you sincerely for listening. And I hope to see you again soon.